Welcome to the prolific teaching ministry of Pastor Emmanuel Iren, lead pastor of Celebration Church International. It is his vision to partner with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Ready, set, grow. Lord Jesus, we honor you and we honor your word. And we thank you that your spirit backs up the teaching of your word upholds the integrity of your word with signs following. As your word is taught, birth in us an experience consistent with your word. Transform lives, heal the sick, stir up our hearts in devotional fervor, and let us live better than we came. In Jesus' mighty name, we've prayed. Amen, amen and amen. So um, the anchor text we've been using this month is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, and it says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So the theme for this month is colors of grace. And by that, we are referring to the fact that in the Bible, colors were used as metaphors to describe the condition of the natural man. For instance, the Bible tells us Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 8, it says, let your garment always be white and let your head not lack ointment. And this text we just read in Isaiah 1, 18, it says, though you notice the figure of speech simile, though your sins be red like scarlet. So that gives us um, an idea that scarlet represents metaphorically the state of a fallen sinful man. And last week, we talked about scarlet in the series Colors of Grace. And today, we're talking about snow, white as snow. Understanding holiness is what we are talking about today. Understanding holiness. And I have two simple objectives. Number one, to steer you to pursue growth in sanctification. To steer you to pursue growth in sanctification. I cannot stress how important this is. Once upon a time, all you had to do to raise godly children was to protect them from the corruption in the world by keeping them from wrong kind of parties, wrong TV programs, and all of that. We are living in a time where it is almost impossible because corruption is everywhere. Are you going to stop them from having phones? Are you going to stop them from going to school? So even if you do a good job, you're going to have to count on the parents of others to do a good job with the people who will be classmates with your children and good luck with that. So at some point, I think it was Pastor Tony Rappel who said, we are coming back to the days of Noah where even if it is only you and your family living in a generation of contradiction, you still stand your ground. So the approach to training children has to change. Are you getting this? Um, you're not going to have naive children. And that's the picture of, you know, goodness. Like you're innocent. You don't know what is happening. You're going to have children who know everything that is happening, but have such a solid training to live in a manner that is consistent with the will of God. Say loud, amen, if you understand what I'm saying. And then the second thing I want to achieve today 
is to help you rest in the finished work of Christ. Let me tell you this. The body of Christ struggles with this balance. It looks like the people who are trying to get us to grow in sanctification end up affecting our rest in the finished work. And it looks like many people who are trying to get us to rest in the finished work innocently make us passive when it comes to growth in sanctification. And the Bible teaches both. Both must go hand in hand. But I dare say if you must pick your extreme, pick the second one. But hey, you don't have to pick an extreme. Let me say, let me say this to you. When you read Romans chapter 10, you understand the bane of many well-meaning churches where Paul says, my heart desire to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For they have a zeal for God, but not according to righteousness. So you can be zealous in religious devotion and not be saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the fact that you believe in moral excellence does not mean that you are pleasing God as good as moral excellence is. And at the same time, if you are resting in the finished work of Christ and they are not growing in sanctification, you are also wrong. There's something called vital signs in medical science. You see, no matter the emergency, well, most times you go to a hospital. I don't want to say no matter the emergency. I don't know that much. But when you go to a hospital, before you get to see the doctor, they'll pass you to a nurse or someone who is going to take what is called your vitals to check your temperature, your blood pressure, and all of that. And all these readings help the doctor make a diagnosis about what is wrong with you. And there are vital signs for believers. There are some things that once you begin to spot in your life, you know you are headed for trouble. Even if someone has not fallen into temptation, there is a way he will start acting. You will know. It's either it has happened or it will happen. By the time your prayer life is just going consistently on a decline, and you've not been inspired spiritually in a while, trouble is coming. But one other thing that should raise a serious alarm is if the things that used to break your heart before, they happen and they don't impact you. I mean, um, scenes that when you do before, maybe you will cry. You can't believe it. There is, there, is a, there is a metaphor for that. Paul said, you have said your conscience with the hot iron. There are many metaphors for that. It's also called hardness of heart. Where the things that should affect you break your heart. It no longer has that effect on you. And the reason why this is serious is because this is so basic. You don't have to be a religious person to have a conscience. Conscience is something all men have. There is something called the moral law. And everyone, religious or not, just has this sense of accountability to some corporate and established moral standard. Such that even if the Ten Commandments was never given to you, you know it's wrong to kill. Do you understand what I'm saying? I can make an argument that, I mean, atheists who don't believe in God, it makes no sense. How do you justify your moral law? Because you can't believe in the moral law without the moral law giver. But it makes no sense. That's another argument for another day. But the fact is, all men 
have that inner consciousness. So the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, for instance, it says the invisible things of God from the foundation of the world are clearly seen in the things that he has made so that man is without excuse. So if you come to this room, for instance, after six months and you find out that the place has been cleaned, you know that the place is only cleaned because someone cleaned it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because it's a law of nature that wherever you see intelligent design, there must be an intelligent designer. So Paul is saying, when you look at the world, the intelligence in nature, you know that there is a God out there. The invisible things about God, even if you've never seen God before, from the things that he has made, you can know that there is a God out there. And man is without excuse. Not only do you know there is a God, it brings a sense of accountability to him. And so now Paul makes a conclusion, even to nations that were never given the law. He says they knew God. Yeah, you were not given the law, but you knew God. And he says they did not honor him. They did not retain God in their consciousness. So he gave them up to a reprobate mind to do things which are not convenient. So even for people who did not have the law, sin was inconvenient. Are you getting what I'm saying? How much more believers who have several calls to live in a manner that is consistent with sanctification in the Bible. So many calls in the Bible. The Bible says to abstain from fleshly lusts, to mortify the deeds of the body, to make no provision for the flesh, to love not the world, to flee immorality, to put off the old man, to think on these things, things that are pure, lovely, you know, um, and all of that. It says, think on these things. To let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. To present your bodies a living sacrifice. To cleanse yourself from all filthiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. To walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the loss of the flesh. To lay aside all evil. All evil communication. You see, the New Testament alone is replete with so many instructions of that sort. And we will talk even more on that next week. But first, I just want to give you two simple reasons why... Personal holiness is very important. The first is for thanksgiving. For thanksgiving. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, I think verse 3, it says, buried with him with baptism, that like as Christ was raised up, we also should walk in the newness of life. It means that every time you walk in the spirit, you don't fulfill the loss of the flesh, you overcome sin, you are testifying to the world that Christ is risen. And that's a huge motivation for walking in sanctification. To thank him who raised you from the dead with him. Thanksgiving. It says you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness. Show it forth in thanksgiving. That's why it's important. And then the second reason is example. Example, Bible says we are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, as though God doth beseech you by us. So make no mistake, listen, God wants us to be the vehicle through which the world will see him. And so throughout the Bible, there is something I've taught you before, I call it the PR of God. That the things that you do 
affect the PR of God. God is concerned about how the world sees him through what his children do. So as grievous as the sin of David was, for many reasons, one of the things that the prophet Nathan said is, he said, because of what you've done, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the heathen. And in fact, it's one of the criterion for choosing leaders in the church is that he must have a good report amongst the heathen. Good example. God wants us to be good examples. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. I want to read verse 14 to 15. So um, I want to kill two birds with a stone to buttress the point I'm making with this and then to change your understanding of this text because it doesn't mean what many people think that it means. And I, um, this is by the way, so you have to pay attention so that you get it. It says, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And this looks like a contradiction to the fact that the Bible says we are saved by grace through faith, that none of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So when you see texts like this, you wonder, come, is it personal holiness that births the privilege of heaven or just faith in Christ? Because what does this mean? But this is actually talking about how the world sees God through us. That's what he's saying. He says, follow peace with all men, and holiness. So first and foremost, this is talking about our social interactions. Follow peace with all men and holiness. I, I wish I had the time to explain the con, what is called a conjunction in English language, but means something else in the Greek. This word kai, translated and, all right? But follow me. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. First and foremost, if this means what people thought it meant, the construction would have been different. He didn't say follow peace with all men and holiness without which you cannot see the Lord or we cannot see the Lord. He says no man. And he's saying, and I'll, I'll prove it to you. you. You read the next verse. He's saying, if you don't follow peace with men and holiness with men, you miss an opportunity for them to see God in you. He says, let your light so shine that men may see, is it your faith that they will see? It says your good works and do what? Glorify the Father. So even if it is your faith that saves you, it is your works that men see. Are you getting what I'm saying? So pay attention. Look at verse 15. It says, looking diligently, lest any man fall or fail of the grace of God, lest there be any root of bitterness springing up to trouble you. Who is bitterness troubling? But what will be the repercussion? And thereby many be defiled. So he's telling you how the things that happen to you, the things you allow, impact others. Are you getting this? So if you allow bitterness, for instance, he says many will be defiled. A little leaven living at the whole lump. Be not deceived. Evil communication corrupts good manners. That's what he's saying. The bitterness that you allow in you will affect others. So therefore, follow peace with all men. Don't allow bitterness. Are you getting this? Follow peace with all men and holiness without which they can't see God in you. Otherwise, this would have been a contradiction to what Jesus clearly said. Except a man be born again, he shall not see. So what do I need to do to see? Be born again. That's what Jesus said. 
But I said all of that to say this. Our example is so important. So we should walk around with that consciousness. The world is watching. Hallelujah. I wish I had more time to talk on that. But hey, having said all this, and like I said, we will delve more into personal holiness and sanctification next week. As I move towards the second objective, you have to realize there is more to holiness than people think. Please, did you hear what I just said? It is important that you grow in sanctification. In fact, there is that intrinsic desire in all men for us to do better. All religions agree with one thing. They agree that man is broken. Something is wrong with man. And man needs salvation. The way they go about their explanation of what man needs to do is different. That's where the major difference is. But all religions agree. So now the question you need to ask yourself is, how is Christianity different? Listen, this is the reason why some uneducated people say all religions are the same. Since, after all, we are all pursuing the same thing. You are choosing, you are trying to be a better person. I'm trying to be a better person. So what then is the difference in our religions? They are not the same. And the things I'm about to mention to you radically differentiate our approach to holiness and the lens through which we see holiness from just any other person out there. Number one, and I'm going to move fast with this so you, you, you just pay attention. Number one, of all the religions in the world, Christianity is the only faith where the founder died personally for his followers. That changes everything. It is one thing, and I say respectfully, for Mohammed to say, do this to be a better person, and for Buddha to say, do this to be a better person. But Jesus comes on the scene, and he says, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down. So he says, I am ransom. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? I'm See, that changes everything. That approach is different. That lens is different. Listen, Jesus died. See, you can never approach the subject of sin without considering that Jesus died. There is no other way to approach, you know, the subject of sin and sanctification and holiness without embracing the fact that Jesus died. And then secondly, no other religion claims the cleansing of personal and corporate sins through the personal sacrifice of his founder. So, Buddha never said that his blood will cleanse sins. He never said that. And like I say, like I said earlier, that changes everything. So what then is holiness? There must be more to holiness. When people think about holiness, they think about abstaining from sin most of the time. But guess what? God is holy. Is God trying not to sin? No, sir. No, sir. Ah. Oh, all right. Yeah, I just played it. No, I couldn't resist. <laughs> Whatever your definition of holiness is, it must be consistent with the truth that God is holy. 
So if before sin existed, God was holy, in what way is God holy? Do you understand what I just said? As simple as that is, it's so powerful, it's so important, and it changes everything. So let's dive into this now. I have just a few minutes. Now, first and foremost, you are not wrong to think of holiness from the context of personal righteousness and sanctification because the Bible uses, you know, holiness to describe that also. But that was secondary. The most primary usage of that word actually meant separate. To be holy means to be separate. Holiness was used to describe that which is different from something else. So when you look at God, he's different. The popular metaphor used to describe God is the sun. As excellent as the sun is in comparison with every other planet in planetary space, the sun stands out. So when we talk about the holiness of God, in fact, all religions talk about how transcendent God is. In fact, that's why Muslims, for instance, can't understand when you say God is your father. They just feel God is so high up. How can you call God your father? Because that's their view of the holiness of God. He's, he's transcendent. He's magnificent. He is higher than anything. All right? And then also, when you think about the holiness of God, there's something um, a theologian in the 18th century called the ambivalence of God. And this is what he means. He says, when you think about God, there are two seemingly contradictory reactions that you have. First and foremost, you feel attracted. There is something about the holiness of God that attracts you. But there is also something about the holiness of God that makes you scared, that freaks you out. So on one hand, you want to come close because what God is radiating is good. But on the other hand, you want to run away because what is emitting can also destroy you. As necessary as the sun is, the closer you get to it, the more it consumes you. That theologian described it with the Latin word mysterium tremendum, meaning, you know, God is strange and fearful. And you see that in Old Testament devotional worship, how they went about it. You dare not enter the most holy place. Everybody will stay outside. Um, only the high priests, all other priests can enter into the inner court. Only the high priest can enter the most holy place and not without going through some rituals. Some Jewish rituals, he had to slaughter a lamb, you know, put it on himself and all of that. But it is noteworthy that even in the Old Testament, what qualified the high priest to enter the most holy place wasn't his personal holiness. There were some ritual practices, you know, he would slaughter a lamb and sprinkle the blood on himself. So it was the blood, not his personal holiness, that gave him the confidence to go in there. So there were some things he was told to do and not to do. You don't touch any dead animal. You don't touch blood and all those things. And as long as you do all of that, then you're good to go. Ritual practices. 
But then we see a radical change as the development of knowledge continues in the Bible. Pay attention to this. In the Old Testament, people were very conscious about what to do and what not to do to be contaminated. The high priest knows, if I touch a dead thing, I become unclean. A woman who is going through a time of the month has to stay indoors because she's unclean until that time of the month has passed. And all of that. So we are more conscious about the things that we do to be unclean. And isn't that how the church is still living today? We hide from the darkness, hide from the world, because we are more particular about how the world sees us. Our definition of holiness is we are apart instead of transformation, preservation. That's our perspective. But then we see the view continue to change. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah finds himself in a scary place in the presence of God, and he begins to cry. Woe is me, I'm about to die. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amidst people of unclean lips. So what is going to happen now? This is an unclean person. He shouldn't be in the presence of God. But then the Bible says an angel flies to him and touches him. And what happened? Did the angel become unclean? No, instead, Isaiah became clean. Are you getting this? Now, this changes everything. The angel touches Isaiah and Isaiah becomes clean. This radically changes the perspective of holiness that we have. And we see that same idea exemplified in Christ in his incarnation. So Jesus had finished teaching, you know, the Beatitudes, the attitudes to be. And he came down from the mountain. The Bible tells us the first people he saw were leopards. Leopards who under the law are unclean. You should have no dealings with them. You shouldn't touch them. And even from the way they asked, you could tell that they knew what they were doing was wrong through the, you know, under the law. They're like, well, if you will, make us clean. And he said, I will. Oh, glory to God. He didn't run away from them. He didn't hide from them. He stretched out his hand and touched them. And instead of becoming unclean, they became cleansed. I'll tell you another story. There's a woman with the issue of blood. Under the law, she's unclean. But she hears about this miracle worker. She knows if I will just touch the hem of his garment, I will be clean. Now, how do I carry out this heist? How do I steal this healing? Because it's wrong under the law. I'm not supposed to go out, but I really want this. I've, I've suffered this much, 12 years. So I'm just going to go out secretly, do it. No one is going to touch me. You know, no one is going to catch me and run away. But to her surprise, as she touched him, Jesus turned and said, who touched me? Now she was afraid. Oh, they've caught me. This has repercussions under the law. You know, I'm not supposed to be out. I'm not supposed to touch anybody. Oh, now, because I touched him, under the law, he's meant to be unclean. But that's not what happened. The Bible says, as she touched him, virtue went out of him. And instantly, the flow of blood stopped. Hallelujah. And so he turned around, looked at her and said, don't be afraid, woman of God. He said, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Now, that's our Jesus. And that's our picture of holiness. Listen, and this changes everything. 
So we move from the perspective of a God so transcendent, a God we are scared of, a God that, I mean, the high priest, to enter the most holy place, they had to put chains on their leg because if they did anything wrong, they could die and no one can go in to bring them out. So they just have to drag them out. They, you know, that was the kind of image they had of God. But now we see a kind of, a picture of God that has a holiness that is good to us. Yeah. A holiness that is good for us. And that changes everything. Turn your Bibles, Psalm chapter 97 verse 12. What you're about to read is good stuff. Are you there? I want you to read it as loud as you can. One, two, go. Read it again. One, two, go. It says, rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Now, the remembrance of the holiness of God in the past will make us scared and worried and perturbed and make us cry like Isaiah. Woe is me, like you're about to die, like it's about to kill you. But now he says, give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Why? Why is that? Because now the holiness of God is demonstrated in the fact that he judged someone on the cross in your stead. Someone paid the price. I mean, think about it. Because he's holy and he's just, he didn't just say go. He will be corrupt to do so. So he found himself a substitute. Someone took your place, paid your price. And do you know what it means? That God looked away from his own son on the cross. You don't understand what it would have taken. I told you last week, even the earth couldn't understand what was happening. As the blood of Jesus began to drip and it touched the earth, there was an earthquake. The earth was like, what is this? How can the blood of the son of God touch me? The sun refused to shine. Everywhere at noon became dark. We're not talking about a small occurrence here. This was the son of God. And on the cross, he looked and he cried, Eli, Eli! Meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, theologians were careful to point out that this was even the first time he would even call God, God. Every other time he called him Father. That was the basis of their relationship. So why is he calling him God now? Because he was taking your place in sin. And now because of you, God looked away from his own son. Now that's holiness. And now, he said he has seen the sacrifices of sin and he is satisfied. All the demands of justice have been met. And so in his holiness, he has chosen to be for you. The holiness of God is now on your side. And now at the remembrance of his holiness, you rejoice. Come on, go ahead and rejoice right now. Thank him for the blood. Thank him for the cross. Thank him for the price that he has paid. So now this is a consciousness to have. You may be seated. I'm going to wrap this up very soon. I'm going to read three texts and then we bring this to a close. You're going to open Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14. 
This is another good, good one. This is very good. Hallelujah. So listen, this is how we desire to do better regarding sanctification by knowing what he has done. So when we hear stuff like this, we don't say, oh, it doesn't really matter what we do. Mm -mm. We say it matters even more. He paid this price for me. The Bible says the goodness of God drives us to repentance. That's the biblical response. Hallelujah. And now, do you know what it means that Paul will be writing and say to the saints at Ephesus? Do you know what that means? You know, even some religious denominations still don't understand it. Do you know what sainthood means amongst the Catholics? Sainthood. And now Paul generalizes. He's talking to an entire church, to the saints. In Christ. He calls you a saint. And so one thing you have to reconcile is the conundrum. I'm going to touch on this very soon. Where your conscience is seeing something else. And the word of God is saying something else. Because like Peter, you see in a trance, animals that your head says are unclean. And you say, God, they are unclean. And God says, do not call what I have cleansed unclean. You know what that means? It means you can feel unclean and be wrong. Are you paying attention to what I'm saying? And this does not in any way suggest that you should excuse the inconsistencies in your life. I'm giving you the right lens through which you should fight them. So you are not fighting those inconsistencies so that you can be close to God. You are fighting those inconsistencies because you are a child of God. And therefore you have received power. The things that were irresistible are no more irresistible. And so Paul can write to a church and say, let he that stole steal no more. He tells you that because you can stop. You know? Did you hear what I said? Now, now you have the power as a child of God. You are seated with him, don't you understand? And that changes everything. Now, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14. I want you to read this, scream this at me as loud as you can. One, two, go. For by one offering, he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. I wish I had enough time to spend on this. Read it again, one, two, go. Now, let me ask you this. How many offerings did he say is necessary for all your shortcomings? Has that offering been made already? He said, by one offering. He said, he has what? Listen, you may not feel perfect, but he said he has perfected. Hallelujah. Now, he uses a metaphor to describe you. He calls you a vessel. A vessel of mercy. A vessel of grace. And he has chosen to walk, in, walk through you. His spirit is inside you. If his voice spoke from a mountain and the mountain was holy and he lives inside you. And so, now he says, you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. You might not always feel like it. 
But as a matter of fact, and because of what he has done, he says you are holy. And so he tells you in Hebrews 4.16, he says, therefore let us come boldly. So listen, this education in terms of what he has done instills in you a boldness. He says, come boldly. Hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for listening. We are sure that you have been blessed. For inquiries, reach us on our helpline 0809-996-7000. Blessings.